And it's like what makes us human and we like don't even talk about it. And I think, again, if we would all just talk about it more, we could just help each other understand language more. Thank you for joining us on the Myanmar Insight Podcast. My guest today is Kitty Craig, an American linguist who has spent the past seven years studying minority languages in Myanmar and the complex and often fraught politics around those languages. She's also the co-founder of Myanmar Indigenous Community Partners, an NGO that works with minority groups to help them preserve, expand, and pass their languages on to the next generation. Today, she will be taking us through the complex and misunderstood linguistic landscape of Myanmar, sharing her experiences working with minority language communities, and hopefully dispelling a few language myths along the way. So um, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, in the United States, um, and there were, um, there still are, um, lots of people from all over the world, both refugees and immigrants, and um, yeah, just a variety of people. So I always was really interested in them and their languages and their cultures. It was just so distant from me and my experience growing up in a very white bread place, as we say. Um, yeah, and then I went to university, and I changed. In America, you can, like, change your spe- specialization, your major, um, really as many times as you want. So I'd, I was kind of hopping between different studies, and for one degree program, I had to take a linguistics class. Um, so that's when I realized that I liked linguistics. I didn't know what linguistics was um, before that, and so I kind of dove into that. Um, I went on, went on to get a, a master's in linguistics. Um, and while I was doing my master's program, I met a lot of Burmese refugees. I lived in this neighborhood with people, again, refugees and immigrants from all over the world. Um, and a lot of them were from what we now know as Myanmar. Um, so then it kind of all came together. I was like, well, I can move to Myanmar. So I did that after I finished my um, degree in 2014. And yeah, that's what I've been doing since then, working sort of in what we would call language development um, in Myanmar, so specifically, typically in language and education, but also kind of more broadly. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you say that you're working in education, all these sorts of things. We know that the uh, prior to the coup, there was a lot of push to change the education system in the country. Um, traditionally, education has ended in year 10. Matriculation exams would typically be done after someone's about 16 years old, and they wanted to bring that up to about 18 years. Uh, but of course, uh, we also know that education in the country is is very Bama language dominant. So 
were you working with the central government? Were you working with uh, just local communities? What sort of organizational structure were you interacting with? Um, in the past, it was pretty much strictly non-government and not always even a kind of formal education system, sometimes just um, like either after school programs or um, like Sunday school programs, especially focused on literacy. Um, since there are many communities that don't have their own schools, but then there are other communities where they do have their own schools. So then it would be kind of working formally within their um, education system. And recently, um, you mentioned the sort of education reforms. Um, the state government, the central government, um, started to, um, I'm not even sure what the word to use is, develop and in- implement um, the local curriculum, which has not, um, it's not very well defined. Lots of people don't really know what it is. So it's still kind of confusing, really. Um, it's kind of, it's been implemented some places, not other places, and some people don't really understand what it is. So anyway, that to say, we've been doing a bit with that as well. So that will be under the central government. Interesting. So this this, this allows us to, to really start delving into this question of language in education within Myanmar. So first of all, you, you mentioned this local curriculum. Um, <laughs> from the way that you describe it, evidently, it's not something that is particularly well-defined and set out. But uh, in your opinion, what is it supposed to be? What is the concept behind it? So I think it comes from a lot of these non-Bama groups asking or demanding for their languages to be used in schools. Um, that's, um, what's the word? That's something that's important to them. They want to maintain their language and their culture. Um, they want their kids to understand just their identity, really. Um, and they don't want them to necessarily switch to using other languages. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of where it came out of, but we can also see, you know, like the research that's been done internationally all over the world that students can learn additional language, additional languages to um, a higher level, higher proficiency. They can, uh, they have more success in learning additional languages if they have a foundation in their first language, which is kind of a basic concept of education is the idea of like scaffolding. You build on what the learner already knows. If the learner already knows you know, this languages or a few languages that you can build on that linguistic repertoire um, to help them gain proficiency and confidence in other languages. Yeah. If that makes so, sense. Yeah, so would this local curriculum have been... So what, what I think I'm trying to drive at is, was this an attempt by the central government to say, we will allow you to study your language as a subject in government schools? Or was it an attempt to say, we will allow you to complete the entire national curriculum in your native language. So right now it's just one subject, so it's not really ideal. Um, But I think maybe that research was one of the things that helped convince the government to start to allow this. Um, And I should say, originally it made it sound like it was supposed to be only local language teaching, 
but then it kind of morphed into two different things, the ethnic language teaching portion and then the uh, local knowledge portion. So the local knowledge portion, it's supposed to be in Burmese. It hasn't been implemented yet, but the portions of the curriculum that have been written are all in Burmese. But so that... So what you're saying is that it's not just about changing the language of instruction, it is also about localizing the content of instruction to to apply to identity. Theoretically. Also, the idea of local isn't very well defined in the protocol for this local curriculum. So there's sort of some confusion. Is this local, um, like local economy, local agriculture, or is this referring to like a particular ethno-linguistic community identity? Does right. that make sense? Yeah. So it sounds like even the people who might have been well-meaning in trying to set up the system may not themselves have fully understood what parameters need to be set in order for this to be effective. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what they were thinking, to be honest. <laughs> so... Okay, so then let's let's just pretend you had your perfect world. Uh, I mean, we have so many examples of multilingual societies. I know that in the West, we, we, we tend to forget about this a lot, especially in the Anglosphere. We have this idea of like, well, yeah, of course, every country has a national language, and, you know, that's all it is. But, you know, we have many examples of, of pluricentric multilingual communities, and education is approached in different ways. Could you, can you find a comparison uh, to another country's system that you think would work that you think would be effective for the Burmese context? Mm, I'm not sure that there is, you know, I think there's still a lot of like, like standard language ideology and we're kind of obsessed with this notion of being a native speaker or being fluent, but really you could say like there's not really any such thing as being fluent because language is always changing. So it's kind of a moving target, right? And everyone has their own, their own dialect, their own family like, their own dialect, whatever you want to call it, right? So it's like, well, fluent, what do you mean? Like, who defines what fluent is? Who, when do you become fluent, right? Kind of the same thing with being a native speaker. Well, who des- decides what that means? What does it mean to be a native speaker? Um, which is, I think, pretty obvious with English, right? If you grew up in Singapore speaking English as your first language, you're not necessarily seen as a native speaker, even if that is your first language. You know, it's the only language that you speak. Um, So yeah, I think that's part of my work and part of what I'm passionate about as well, sort of, um, what's the word? Analyzing, challenging these notions that we have that's just kind of commonly accepted, but um, don't really reflect reality. Okay, so you you see yourself not only as, as working to protect um, the languages themselves and keep them from from being uh, you know potentially wiped out and we're, we're going to talk about that because there's a there's a lot of history to unpack there but you also want to fight um, this sort of meta linguistic if we can say that uh, fight to to let people know that they they carry a lot of um, harmful misconceptions and and they force themselves into these strange uh, situations that they absolutely do not need to in order to function, in order to be um, valuable members of society. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. You know, sometimes 
so like sometimes in my work, we talk about mother tongue based multilingual, multilingual education, MTB MLE, right? That's this idea of starting the first language and then moving to another language. So even though, you know, there's some helpful concepts and it can be, there can be some practical tools that you can use in that model. It's still kind of sometimes, um, doesn't necessarily, yeah, challenge these notions that we have of um, language and identity and how we use language and this, what language is. Does that make sense? Sometimes it can actually sort of exacerbate these um, harmful ideologies and linguistic discrimination. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna put a pause on that particular one because it is it is such a brilliant topic and I'm happy you brought it up. But uh, I want to circle back and cover the sort of background and history before we delve okay. into into that stuff. As exciting as it is, I'm, I'm, I'm champing at the bit here. But the Myanmar context, so many of our listeners are familiar with the Myanmar context. They have some connection to the country. But, you know, I myself lived uh, in Yangon. And I very rarely ventured outside of Yangon. And if I did, I went to Bagul. I went to Naypyidaw. I went to other places within the Bama-dominated regions. Uh, I was very rarely in non-Bama regions. And and like a lot of people, I really did not grasp the true scale of the linguistic uh, challenge that the country faces. I, I, I would call it very much a challenge. So could you, in your own words, um, for the benefit of everyone listening, just tell us what, what has been the linguistic background here and particularly the clash between languages and the loss mm. of languages? Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word challenge. <laughs> um, I would challenge that notion, right? I think often we see language as sort of um, obstacles or barriers or problems, but really they can be a huge resource. I mean, having all this linguistic diversity, it means you have all these different perspectives and different ways of viewing the world and different ways of navigating the world. Um but, you know, t- sort of taking it back to what you were really um, wanting to ask is, um, yeah, geez, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, um, yeah, like you said, it's very linguistically diverse. Um, gosh, yeah, I have to think about where to start with that. <laughs> Maybe it would be helpful to talk about um, linguistic um, identity. Um, mm. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, it occurred to me after I asked the question, actually, that um, that would be a thing. So let, let me just pose a question now and the editing team can cut that previous part out. <laughs> Let's okay, that. okay I, I apologize. Um, no, you're fine. Yeah, so this, this, no, this is good. I'm liking this. So, um, so can you explain for us and can you tell us what is the significance of language to a community, what role does that play in their identity? What makes that language and its preservation so important? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us use identity as a tool to construct our identity, right? The sort of essential part of ourselves, sort of on an existential level. So it carries a lot of, um, yeah, existential importance. If you lose your language, it's like losing yourself right um you can feel like you're losing your agency because you're losing your voice sort of on a fundamental level um 
yeah, and if you think about it, language is like what kind of what makes us human. It's kind of this unique feature of humanity. Um, it's how we move through the world. Everything goes through language. So every every aspect of our life, every sector, every domain um, uses language, right? It's, it's central to everything we do as human beings, especially as we interact with others, right? It's our primary tool for interacting with uh, the rest of society. So it's really central to everything and especially in Myanmar since it's so um, diverse and identity and belonging are quite contentious Um, so it can also be used as a tool as a weapon even to decide who belongs and who doesn't Um, yeah for better or for worse Um, yeah so so let me jump in on that one there Uh, because uh, and and so you I want to play devil's advocate, and I, I just want to clarify for, for everyone. Um, I I grew up as an immigrant. You know, I I, I speak a minority language. Um, my language is obviously the majority language in the country that I come from, but in the country where I live, it's a minority language. So I I, I have very great sympathy. But purely to play devil's advocate, would you not agree with the argument that some people make that it is better? for the perspective of national unity and cohesion, from the perspective of the operation of a state uh, from border to border, if all of the people in that state communicate in the same language? No, not necessarily. I think we can see this in Myanmar, you know, um, whenever you sort of prop up one language uh, against all the others, that language and the people who identify with that language kind of come out on top, right? So it kind of, it can create more tension and less social cohesion, right? I mean, if there is conflict, but I think the argument that is sometimes brought up is that if we achieve the next generation and the generation after that, um, for example, if we look at the way that a language has shifted in China, uh, to bring up an example, um, you know, in China, we we see in certain places like in Mongolia, where two generations ago, Mandarin Chinese was very much a foreign language that was learned in school. The previous generation would speak Mandarin Chinese and Mongolian, uh, both very competently. And the latest generation very often do not pick up much of their heritage language and they learn standard Mandarin in schools and they speak that as their their predominant language and their strongest language. So as a very gradual shift, the argument that we would hear from uh, government in China is that this is beneficial because now the people of Inner Mongolia do not face language obstacles in moving to urban centers. Uh, they're more effective in communicating with their own government. Uh, trade has been facilitated. National unity has been facilitated. Nobody says, I don't belong to China because I speak a different language. That would be the argument. Do you not sort of see any uh, merit in that particular approach? Yeah, I think there's lots of different things I could say. I mean, first, you have to be okay with losing that language, which means like losing a lot of knowledge, losing a lot of um, ways of dealing with the issues that face us, like climate change, right? Um, the, the different languages and have different information sort of encoded in them, um, quite literally scientific information, right? Um, different uh, medicinal properties of different plants and trees and things like that. Um, Just 
information about uh, ecologies and geography, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you can also lose a lot of history when the speakers of a language either die off or they switch to another language. Often you lose a lot of that history. So I think first you have to be okay with losing like a wealth of information. You know, sometimes linguists will quote, well, they say it's an African proverb. I have no idea where it comes from or who even said it. But they say um, when a language dies, it's like a library burning down with it. But it's not even just any old library. It's a library with like unique titles that you can't find anywhere else. Oh, well, I mean, it's like this idea that you have to all speak one language. I don't understand why we've sort of, why that's a foregone conclusion right wouldn't we can we also construct <laughs> sort of a pluralistic i guess identities like we sort of already do i think it's kind of a myth like we're not static people and culture isn't static nothing's static everything is dynamic everything's changing everything is intersecting with other things right we have intersecting identities um so i think that's kind of a myth that there is or that we can have this sort of very fixed um, linguistic identity or even a fixed sort of national identity if that makes any sense yeah no i absolutely agree i i mean like i say i'm, I'm playing devil's advocate just um because the, the this particular line of argument is brought up just so very often and and because we see language weaponized, we, we do we we see language and identity both being weaponized by uh, governments and by national groups, where the division between language and dialect is legislated, and it's not based on necessarily any linguistic fact. It's just based on this idea of I need a line in the sand between my group of people and the other group of people, and and this sort of thinking is something that I think is quite dangerous. Uh, and not helpful, so that's that's sort of why I wanted to to just bring up the um, that was advocacy because, uh, as you say, as you say, loss of languages is loss of culture, and and there are, you know, ancient ancient stories encoded. Uh, I was just reading the other day that the some of the Kareni people have a, an ancient tale that they tell talking about a shifting river of sand. And um, archaeologists and anthropologists try to use these sorts of folk stories that are largely untranslated to try and track the migratory history of entire ethnic groups of people and try to find their their sort of ancient homeland. And it, it would be lost to, you know, all humanity for all time if, if those languages died out. So I, I just want to reiterate, I am, <laughs> I am very, 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 very happy that, uh, that people like you exist and are preserving these languages. Um, however, in, in the Myanmar context, factually speaking, I think we can say that there has been a very strong dominance of the Bama language, uh, and a very strong preference for the Bama language in governance to the point where a lot of citizens who cannot speak and cannot read and write Bama have been left disadvantaged and unable to uh, defend themselves in court, have been left unable to um, retain their property and retain their citizenship rights in some extreme cases. So what 
how how severe would you say is the risk posed to minority languages and to the speakers of minority languages in Myanmar? A lot. I mean, I guess another thing we could talk about with your previous question as well is the trauma of losing your language, the trauma of um, like forced assimilation, um, which also goes hand in hand with the fact that this language that they're being forced to use or people are trying to force them to use it is also the language that they were traumatized in to begin with. Right, Myanmar has a very long history of um, violence and conflict. Um, so sometimes, quite literally, that's the language you were, that was that you heard right before you sh- saw your village burned down, before you saw um, your parents shot, or before you were raped. Right. So there's a lot of trauma wrapped up in in language, um, sort of in two different ways. Right, losing your language, um, but also the language that was used while you were being traumatized. So there's that sort of psychological aspect. Um, yeah, there's also the fact that they can't really participate in society if they don't um, not just know Burmese, but use Burmese sort of in the correct way, right? Um, kind of going back to the standard language ideology. Because um, even when they do learn Burmese, they're still stigmatized right? Because they don't sound like a quote-unquote native speaker. So, um, yeah, and so, yeah, they face stigma, they face um, prejudice and discrimination. Um, Yeah, so that's just not really helpful for anyone. That doesn't build social cohesion. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's important, I think, to emphasize, and and I know that you've uh, touched on this already a few times, that trying to to marginalize a language is marginalizing an entire identity an entire community uh, it's 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 a very egregious form of of erasure uh, that that very often just flies under the radar and doesn't get doesn't get noticed doesn't get picked up because language is seen by so many people as this functional tool and if that particular language is not judged to be particularly functional then like a broken hammer, it should be discarded and replaced with a superior version. And that that's just not appropriate for language. That's just not how language works. That's not what language is to us. Uh, and especially communicating to the past generations, people who are dead, you know, their writings and, and their recorded voices. If we lose that language, we've lost the ability to connect to, to our own ancestors. Um, but uh, as you point out, the the ideology that many people carry just does not recognize this and does not have space mm-hmm. for this sort of thing yeah i think along with yeah. that i could probably you know do a little bit of a critique of capitalism right <laughs> of <laughs> modification of everything but i think that's a whole nother subject <laughs> yeah it's definitely not my area of expertise but you can't write everything interacts with everything else so you can't really yes. isolate anything absolutely absolutely and and intangible value is just something that I feel that a lot of people in, in positions of power pride themselves on ignoring, you know, um, and then going on a tangent, but we've seen this with, with things like infrastructure investment. We've seen this with vaccines for COVID, whatever it's, it doesn't matter to them that it benefits society. If you can't put a dollar amount on it and you can't mm-hmm. evaluate it against an alternative, it's not valuable in a specific sense. Therefore it's not valuable. 
And yeah. communities lose opportunity, very serious opportunities, sometimes crippling them for generations as a result of this type of thinking. So mm-hmm. it, it is important to change that. But I will rile myself up, so I will be a good boy, <laughs> and I will, not, I will not get political today. Um, well, I think it's kind of impossible. Language is political. <laughs> exactly. Um, so so let's move on to the things that you, you have been doing. So prior, prior to forming uh, ICP, uh, you were working with, with different language communities. Can you sort of tell us roughly uh, which communities you were focused on? Yeah, I've worked with people from all over the country, really. Um, some Chin communities, especially Southern, from Southern Chin State and Rakhine State. Um, who else have I worked with? I've worked with people from Kachin State. Um, some of them would probably identify as kitchen some of them would not um but they belong to what a lot of people consider a kitchen uh subgroup i suppose um you, you mean the um, the tribes of the kitchen or is this a different uh subdivision yeah so typically people will say okay jingpo rawang zaiwa lisu lache and lapu are the six kitchen languages a lot of the people belonging to those groups or identify as um, that ethnicity would resent that and would disagree for whatever reason. Um, yeah, sorry. It, it was described to me in that way by, by a Kachin person saying there are six languages and there are five tribes, but any language could exist within any one of these tribes. They're, they're not the same thing and they're not interchangeable at all. Um, but my understanding may be completely wrong on that as well. yeah it's complicated right i mean yeah and there's also sort of the linguist would say okay well linguistically you're related this language came from this language etc etc but sometimes that is kind of irrelevant if it's not how the people who actually use the language um relate to the language and relate to each other right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. some kitchen languages uh or whatever you want to call them um other languages, other large languages like Kureni and Sakal, Kuren. Um, yeah, really just languages from all the, over the country. So some of them I worked closely with for a good amount of time. Other languages, mm-hmm. it might just be a one-off workshop or something like that. It's fascinating. And so look, looking at these groups, I'm just looking at this list, and it's, it, it's, it's already sort of intriguing me because the Kachin, we, we just sort of touched on the Kachin and the complexity behind what does Kachin mean? What does it refer to? You know, how does that work? Um, but you also mentioned the Chin and the, the Chin, I mean, just can you explain to me um, in your words how, how the, the, the Chin work? Like, is there such a thing? as chin like is there actually a unifier between them or is that an externally imposed grouping because it's such a linguistically culturally um and and identitarily if we can invent that word uh diverse and rich region of the country it just fascinates me can can, can you take me there <laughs> i mean short answer no <laughs> i can't really <laughs> but i can try and i don't know give you some things to think about i guess 
I mean, I, one thing I guess that we don't always talk about is the fact that all of these groups on the borders were kind of splintered right whenever these international borders were defined by outsiders. <laughs> um, so they were all kind of split, um, which is, I think, relevant for many reasons, right? We can see that the Bama in the center weren't split. <laughs> so there's multiple reasons why um, there's a large population of Bama people. Um, that's just a side note. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I mean, even the word Chin, I mean, I think that's really only used within Myanmar. In India and Bangladesh, other words like um, Kuki are used. Um, Lusha used to be used. I don't know if that's really used anymore. And I think people have different ideas of who is Chin and who's not Chin? Who is Kuki and who's not? Who is Mizo and who's not? Does that refer to a specific language or an entire sort of identity? Um, so yeah, I think it's quite complicated. And I think <laughs> in Myanmar, it becomes more complicated when, you know, sometimes you have more political representation if you identify with a larger group. Sometimes you have more physical protection, quite literally, if you identify with a large group, especially if they have guns. So... Yeah, it, it gets complicated. And sometimes you might want to identify with a certain group in order to disassociate with another group. Um, and sometimes a larger group will want to convince smaller groups to identify with them because it gives them more, you know, they strengthen numbers, and it gives them more legitimacy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> That's, that, that, okay, so that, what you've just said, that, that is incredible for me because... You know, we've heard of situations where people will cling to what in academic terms we could consider to be very small differences, very, very small uh, sort of signifiers that like, oh, you know, I inflect this particular case of this particular noun with an O, but those people on the other side of the river use a U, you know, very small difference. Uh, and they would say, well, that defines us as different, different groups of people. So we've seen this sort of thing where groups of people already exist and they sort of seek out tiny differences in behavior and tradition to justify a deeper divide. But now you're telling me that identity is a thing that it seems you're saying groups will voluntarily change their identity or change the way that their identity relates to other identities for reasons of political expediency. Is, is that correct? Um, that's what I would say. Um, Wow. Yeah, and I think sometimes people don't always express that or sometimes are not even aware of why exactly um, they make the decisions that they make. Um, like, for example, with the Chin, um, mm -hmm. most of them will use the Roman script to write their language. So whenever yes. I ask people, okay, like, why did you choose this? Because a lot of these groups didn't um, start writing their language until recently, some really just in the past few years. Um, so it's still like fresh in their minds. And for some of these people, they were the ones who decided how to write their language. So I'll ask them, okay, well, why did you decide to use Roman scripts? Because it doesn't always fit very well, right? Yeah. <laughs> Roman script was kind of made for um, different languages. Um, so they give these reasons, well, you know, the Burmese script wasn't very, what's the word? Um, it couldn't represent our language accurately. Which would also be true for the Roman script, right? Yes. Um, 
So then I have to come at that. Okay, well, maybe there's other reasons why they're doing that. Maybe it's because they want to identify with their neighbors. They want to create this sort of common identity. And or maybe it's because that they feel like that re- reflects their Christian identity, right? There's mm. kind of association with Roman script and Christianity and Burmese with um, Buddhism sometimes. Buddhism. So I mm. can't be the arbiter. I can't say for sure exactly why these groups make these kinds of decisions. But um, if we look across Myanmar, we can see these different things happening. And again, even within a certain group, maybe some people will say one thing and some people will say another thing. Yeah. There's not always so, a lot of consensus. So, so it's not always a fully conscious decision. It's just something that arises in the mix and people might not fully understand why they, they, they might not even fully be aware that they've made a conscious choice to do that, that they've made a choice rather to do something. Um, they just sort of did what they thought was a natural, natural thing to do. And then, somebody else would be the first one to pose that question saying, did you consider that there were alternatives to this? Mm-hmm. Why did you? Oh. Yeah, that's what I think. I could be wrong. I mean, there is one Chin group that uses Burmese scripts. Really? And I actually have never worked with them directly, but from what it sounds like from other people, other Chin peoples, that it's kind of used to express their... Um, Buddhist religion. It's kind of their uh, way to mark their identity as Buddhists. So again, people could have different views on that, right? That might be an outsider saying that. I don't know. Mm. It's still still such a... Tiny little things, but they, they can be very, very powerful symbolically, and they can really point to to something that is just subconscious. Uh, within a community, but that is a very powerful divide and a powerful motivator within a community. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. So I want to move to let's let's look at the the Karen and the Kareni. Uh, I mean, this applies to other communities as well. But um, so I'm wondering, there's just the situation in in the Karen Hills. There is a there are a lot of Karen languages, a lot of Kareni languages. But my understanding is that you have a lot of varieties that are mutually intelligible. You have a lot of varieties that are totally earth and sky different. Do you do you find when you're doing this work that it is just very difficult to make meaningful distinctions between uh, different languages? Or do you find that bothering to say, this is this language and that is that language is just not even a useful thing to to worry about? Well, like I said, like we generally have to sort of go with whatever local people say, right? If mm-hmm. they decide that this is one language, then sometimes we just have to go along with that. So with that, what happens sometimes is the people that speak the powerful or prestigious variety or dialect or sometimes completely different language mm-hmm. will impose their way of using language on others. Right, mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I don't know how to say, a balancing act, right? Because we can't just come in and say, well, this is this language, this is that language, if that's not how the people who actually use the language view them. Does that make sense? Yeah, but from, from the perspective of an educator, if you have, let's say, a school of children, some of whom were raised speaking a prestige dialect, 
others of whom were raised speaking a variety of the language that is quite different, they're, they're being disadvantaged if they go to school and they're being told, well, you're, you're speaking the same language, you're speaking it badly, yeah. which is incorrect. They're not. They're speaking a completely different variety. Um, right. So do you, do you try to engage with that? Do you try to reach out to groups and say, hey, um, you know, can, can I take you to that village over there? And, and can I watch you try and order things in the market? And maybe you'll have a realization that language doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, it's, yeah, it can be tricky since it's so sensitive and it's so politicized. Mm. Um, yeah, people can get pretty upset if you try to make um, those kind of claims, like, because they're sometimes coming at it from a more, I guess, political point of view, and they don't want their group to be splintered anymore. They don't want to be sort of relegated to this sort of ancillary role, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So sometimes I think it's not something that I have figured out completely, honestly, um, but it's yeah. something that we run into. We're like, well, this isn't going to work for everyone because these other kids just don't understand. Um, so sometimes you can say that. Sometimes you can even like show people. And people still won't necessarily accept it because it's very important for them to maintain their community, I guess, and maintain their identity, maintain, um, you know, like I said, there can be strength in numbers, right? Mm. So if they get smaller and smaller and smaller, then they become more or less significant, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes I think we can acknowledge say okay this is one language but you know people kind of speak differently so how can we um um help these students um if they don't use this they call it bones of god it's like the the i'm not sure how to translate it the common language i guess yeah bones of god Mm. which you know is that actually the common language or not that's another question but if that's what they decide you kind of have to work around that um so yeah and there's also the fact that you know we can only do so much at one time so sometimes you have to start at some place start with start with whatever they think the bone cigars whatever the common language is and then um develop more uh, materials if you need materials for other varieties of that language or other different languages entirely does that make sense mm. yeah, I mean, it absolutely does it's just the, the one thought that's going through my mind is this, it, it, it feels so strange to me, the things you're saying, it's like a smaller version of the mentality that we've seen play out on the, on the national level, where you might have people coming in and saying, well, yeah, but this is the Bama language, this is the standard, and, and there's a reason for that, and it's strength in numbers, and you know, we want to be unified, and we want to bring everyone under the same umbrella. And then you'll have this community who says, no, 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 we, we, we don't want that because we are our own people with our own history, our own heritage, our own identity, and we want to preserve that. But they may, without being fully aware that they're doing this, be playing out a very similar thing with minorities within that, that broad group and say, oh, yeah, but you, no, you don't have a separate identity. You just speak the language incorrectly. And even if that's not true, there's strength in numbers. It's better for our cohesion and unity if you abandon your ways and, and adopt our standard and, and things like this. Mm -hmm. It just feels ironic is, is yeah. the word that I, I want to use here. 
Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just the reality that uh, that we have yeah. to deal with. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another reason why, you know, there's a lot of um, what's the word? <laughs> really just kind of like a surface level or superficial inclusion of the quote unquote ethnics, right? Yeah. We'll have mention of oh and the tin and the karen and the karenni and the shen and the kitchen. So if we list all of these different groups, then we're good. We've included them and everything is copacetic, all good. Mm-hmm. When in reality that's not true. <laughs> Besides the fact that you're excluding like completely separate languages that don't fall into those umbrellas. Right? Mm-hmm. Within the those many, many languages. groups, yeah, there's lots of different, there's different languages, there's different um, people under those sort of umbrellas construct their identity in different ways. Some of them resent being put under that umbrella. Some people don't, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sometimes it kind of exacerbates the issue. I mean, absolutely. And when, you, when you're in Yangon or something like that, you know, the people in Yangon, they're so used to, they're so ingrained. If, if they come from ethnic minorities, they know what the deal is. They're just going to say, oh, I'm this group, I'm that group. And they're going to list off one of the 135 officially recognized groups because they know that most people are not going to listen to them. They're not going to care about what their actual identity is. But when you go out of that bubble and you go to these regions and you say like, oh, so you're this group of people, they're like, I don't know what that is, but it definitely does not apply to me. I've got my own thing, my own identity, my own people, my own everything. Um, it's it's a bit of a sort of wake up when you realize that like, no, no, the, these identities are just artificially imposed on a lot of these people mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. organizational advantages and for administrative reasons and historical reasons, but they're not based on actual communication with these groups and an understanding of their contexts. It's uh it's very yeah. unfortunate that we live in that. Um, but, but speaking of these these identities and mutual intelligibility, there, there's a, a an interesting part. So we talk about all these ethnic minority languages. We talk about you know Shan and Karen and Kachin and all this sort of stuff. But one topic that often does not really get delved into is varieties of Bama, because mm-hmm. again we're in the, we're, it's in this unique privileged position. Bama is the language, and everyone recognizes that there are some small differences. We say, oh, you know, there are people, young girls, who don't pronounce da, they pronounce it as da, and things like this. But when we go to Rakhine, when we go to Dewey, when we go to Pei, we start seeing varieties of Bama that are just so wildly different that native speakers of Bama will, will, will just get completely lost in conversation. And I've heard people argue vociferously that this is Bama, and I've heard people argue equally vociferously that these are completely separate identities. Have you uh, dealt with any of these varieties? Um, not especially. I mean, a little bit with Rakhine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting if you go like to Rakhine State and you know Burmese, it's feels like at first you're like okay i can understand this and then it's sort of like <laughs> takes a weird right turn and you're like oh i don't understand what's happening here yep. so i think yeah that kind of um shows how a language doesn't necessarily exist as a discrete entity right the borders between language and dialect or variety are kind of fuzzy sometimes and mm-hmm. sometimes it's in the process of changing 
right? I think that happens with Rakhine sometimes, you know, because I worked with a lot of Chin people from Rakhine State who spoke Rakhine. So sometimes they couldn't really even, they would forget, like, what was Rakhine and what was Burmese. Sometimes they would say something Rakhine, thinking that they were talking to me in Burmese, <laughs> that I wouldn't understand. <laughs> like, oh, wait, that's a different thing. So, so even in their mind, so this is the question, of course, because we have, we have diglossia, and the average Bamar person, you know, they understand that there is a, a clear distinction between spoken Burmese and literary Burmese. Mm -hmm. And even when they are writing, they are very conscious of the distinction between the two. And, and I've seen mixing. I've seen written work that mixes some formal markers with some informal words. But as a general rule, they, they understand that. They treat both of these as the same language, just different registers. Mm -hmm. With the Rakhine, do you have any insight into how they perceive it? Like, would they think, oh, I'm jumping between Rakhine and Burmese? Or would they think, oh, I'm jumping between, you know, how I speak versus how the people in the city speak so that this person can understand me? Yeah, I think in general, like, I haven't worked with Rakhine people that much, but <laughs> from what I can tell, it seems like they definitely draw a line between what is Rakhine and Burmese as a sort of existential identity, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Um, so it's not just linguistic, it is deeper than that. Yeah, so they want Rakhine to be a separate language, even if it's linguistically related, yeah. um, as well as the fact that they are doing some code switching, since there's so much language contact, there's kind of probably some language shift. But again, yes. I'm not an expert in Rakhine, it's not, I don't really work closely with Rakhine. I appreciate that, but uh, yeah, the you're, the insights that you can offer are still fascinating to me. I've I've never been to Rakhine, uh, so I have no no concept of it myself. Um, so I I really appreciate hearing um, yeah. your your views on that. So <laughs> so let's let's jump forward in time now a little bit uh, because I'm not doing this chronologically. So you formed your your organization and, you, and your organization is, is Myanmar Indigenous Community Partners. And you formed that uh, this year, correct? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So it's been a complicated year for Myanmar. I, I think that's very fair to say. And can, can you just walk me through this? Um, you know, a coup has broken out. The country is, is unstable. And you decide to form this this organization what what challenges and what difficulties are you facing trying to do that in amongst the chaos in the country yeah you know most of the communities that we work with have been living in this kind of conflict for a long time so especially for me since i haven't been living in conflict and this is kind of a new thing for me to per, uh, mm. experience personally um, yeah. I always ask them, like, just about what's going on and how they feel about it and how they're adjusting. And they're like, well, you know, we're used to this. Like, we've had to run before. We've had to work in the jungle before. Um, so it's not really all that new for them. Um, mm. Yeah, they've kind of learned how to adjust. I mean, it's, it, it, it's horrifying because I cannot think of many... Burmese friends that I have, whether ethnic Bama or not, who have not experienced some form of ridiculous hardship 
in their childhoods. Some of them have particularly egregious stories, as you can imagine, and there's just something about it that it, it I don't know, it, it still surprises me every single time that people have simply adjusted to living under these sorts of conditions and living in this sort of a, a horrendous reality. It's, it's, it, it never stops shocking me, I think, mm -hmm. to realize that it is possible to be subjected to that much abuse that you simply accept it as a reality of your life. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's pretty horrifying. It's pretty sad. It is, it is. But hopefully, hopefully, you know, little things help shine a light on on these crises overseas, so that people can understand just how severe this situation is. But mm -hmm. returning to um, to this, so I do want to ask, what exactly are you doing as ICP? Uh, have you changed your operations since you formed ICP or are you sort of continuing uh, the same basic activities? Yeah, so we, all of us, there's basically three sort of co-founders. Um, the other two are from Myanmar, mm -hmm. from non-Burma indigenous communities. Um, so yeah, we've been working as consultants. We've done some research. Both of my colleagues have their PhDs, so they did their research um, in this kind of language, education, linguistics space. Um, so yeah, we're continuing on projects that we were already working on, uh, not necessarily as MICP, but as um, individuals, as consultants. Um, but something else I think that, especially for me, um, as an outsider, I feel like um, I need to do more of this kind of awareness raising um, sort of letting people know, like, not even facts, I'm not sure how to say, but just, like, helping people know what questions they should be asking and how they should be maybe looking at things a little bit differently. Because I don't have all the answers, and I'm not Burmese, and I don't have personal experience, like, as a Burmese person, right? Um, yeah. So I felt, yeah, I felt like I needed to do more of that. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day and because I'm always talking to them, you know, like, I feel like this isn't really my job. This isn't really my responsibility. I'm an outsider. Like, how, why would I be doing this, right? Shouldn't it just be a local person telling their own experience? Um, but then I was saying, you know, but I just feel like people aren't hearing the voices of these people, not the mob people, especially in um, conflict-affected areas. And she said, um, they they aren't heard because the people that know aren't talking anymore. Because she was saying, like I was saying before, there's just so much trauma and there's intergenerational trauma, mm. just layer upon layer of trauma. So the people that know just aren't talking anymore. They've just shut shut off, sort of. Um, so I feel like, well, then I should be doing that so they don't have to like relive their trauma and because. You know, a lot of times, whenever um, people bring up these kind of topics, they kind of get, um, what's the word? They catch a lot of flack, right? People don't really like it. They think yeah, you're disruptive to unity. Oh, you know, I read in um, the, what is it called? Funambulist, I think it's called. It's a, a magazine. This okay. woman, Zoe, I don't know how to say her name. Samudzi. Anyway, she was writing on genocide. And she yeah. said that genocide, I'm reading now, I'm quoting, 
is to read in history books that you no longer exist and that your struggle for a self-determining survival was disruptive to peace and thus dishonorable. It is your tongue tripping over an alien language that is your birthright. It is watching architectural monstrosities erected on lands stolen from you and your family and your community. Which I feel like really um, relates to the Myanmar context and why I think, um, what's the word? Why I think I sort of have a responsibility to speak out because the people mm. that have already experienced this trauma, when they speak out, they're traumatized again for one, reliving that trauma, but then also they're accused of what she said, um, that they're being disruptive to peace, that they're the troublemakers because they're, um, they're causing uh, tension, they're creating less unity, right? So I feel like... Um, I'm not sure how to say that I can do this. I can sort of take on that. um, What's the word? What am I I trying to say? (laughs) I mean, I think, I think I grasp the, the intention here that um, what, what you just quoted was beautiful and deeply depressing at the same time. Uh, I just want to say that, that, I mean, that was actually very poignant and very appropriate, but horrendous. And I, this is, this is so, you know, back at the beginning when I was devil's advocate and saying that there are voices saying that language, you know, doesn't necessarily have a right to exist. Um, I mean, to take it to the, the most extreme place that we can take a conversation uh, that that comes from Mein Kampf, quite literally. There's a section where Hitler says, not all people have a right to exist. And saying not all languages have a right to exist is, is at least in dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. But I think what you've just quoted is the, the perfect response. That's saying that, well, this language doesn't have a right to exist. It's better for national unity if, if everyone speaks the same language and everyone has the same identity. It's saying your struggle to just be allowed to be yourself makes you by virtue of your existence a threat to the state mm-hmm. and and it makes you an enemy because mm-hmm. you wouldn't just shut up and be the thing that i wanted you to be um yeah so i think yeah i thank you for for, for reading that and for bringing that up i think that was that was really beautiful i've never heard that before but that was yeah. a very good way of putting it yeah, the whole, it was like the introduction to uh, the entire issue was on genocide. So her essay at the beginning is called On Genocide. And it's, wow. yeah, it's quite good. That's, so, it's, it's thought-provoking. Yeah, um, so that's what I was trying to say. Like, they're already kind of enemy. Then on top of that, when they try to speak out, they're enemy again. So I feel like they shouldn't really even have to be dealing with that. It's so like, why can't I just mm. speak out? Not for them, but you know what I'm trying to say? I absolutely do. But I, I think, <laughs> and, and I know this, this may not be a popular opinion, but, but I think you're, you're, if anything, being a little bit too hard on yourself here. <laughs> I, I, look, I think that, as you point out, within Myanmar society, number one, these people are already marginalized in so many cases, in so many ways. Just getting a foot in the door is difficult. And... 
you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of other way to say that. If you're white, your voice carries some weight in a lot of countries, mm-hmm. Myanmar included. There is, I think, ethical merit in weaponizing that privilege for the benefit of others. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's an appropriate thing to do. And I think that when we have a country which is still plagued with these ideas that, oh, they're, they're not languages, they're dialects. Oh, they're not dialects, they're just mangling the language. Uh, they're not different, they're inferior. It's, it's, I think, valuable to come in as an outsider and say, hey, I know what you're saying, I'm familiar with it, but here are some things that, that you should consider. Here are some arguments that you've not heard before. Let me make those arguments. Let me help sort of push the discourse forward a little bit. And then that can segue onto saying like, so by the way, here's a community who's been saying the exact same things that I just presented to you. And they've been saying it for the last 75 years. Maybe you can continue the conversation with them now. So, so I, mm-hmm. I, I think that the, what you do is very valuable. I, I think that if you are respected and if you are capable of pushing the issue forward and you're capable of pushing the discourse forward, then it is a good thing that, that you are doing that. Um, it would be better if those people were being listened to in the first instance. But if you can help make people listen to them, then then I think you're, you're bridging a very, very, very important gap. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, <laughs> there will be people who disagree with, with me on that, and that's perfectly fine. Well, thank you. I guess sometimes I feel weary. There's so many people, so many experts talking about Myanmar. It's kind of exhausting. So I just don't want to, like, be adding to the noise. I, I, yeah, I can definitely see <laughs> value in that. And I would just like to point out that in the entire period of our interview, you have never once referred to yourself as an expert. Um, which to me is very clear. <laughs> yeah, which to me is a very good sign of of someone who is is reliable and honest with what they know and what they don't know. Um, there are very few people in the world who both are experts and claim to be experts. It's uh, it's not it's not a common thing. I'm very wary of people who say I'm an expert. Listen to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, sorry. That that's a detraction. That's a detraction. So. I want to move on to something different, um, a passion of mine, and I know that's something you've worked with uh, quite a bit, orthography development. Uh, this is this is incredible. So for, for those who may not be familiar with uh, this issue, in Myanmar today, there are, I mean, do you have any, any bead on how many languages we're talking about, or even a ballpark estimate? Um, languages in general? In general, in the country. Yeah, I think it's, again, depends on how you define a language. Exactly. So something over 130, but again, most of these languages are pretty underserved, under-researched. So mm-hmm. we don't know exactly. We don't know. So, so many of these languages do not have a literary tradition. They don't have a written tradition. And this can happen for many reasons historically. Um, sometimes you just don't need to write things down or other times you would write things down in a different language. Um, and so your you and your team are engaged in assisting communities creating a way in which they can write down their language, 
preserve their language, preserve their culture, preserve their stories in a in a written, transmissible form. And and this is very, very difficult to do because again, we as people who grow up reading and writing think, oh, letters exist, sounds exist, therefore we can just match a sound to a letter. But when you don't have a writing system to begin with, it's it's so difficult to find out what the sounds are. And, and how we can formalize them, how we can divide them. So can you take me through, in brief, the process from beginning to end of sitting down with people who don't have a written form of language and, and how you get to crafting something that they can use? Yeah, so first you would start by collecting a word list. So you would just elicit different words. Um, if you're not a speaker of that language, obviously you have to use a different language um, to elicit those words. Um, but if you already speak the language, then you don't really need to elicit them. You can just record them yourself. Um, <laughs> so you create the, um, a word list. Um, or I, Really, there's different ways you could do it. You could... Um, Anyway, I won't go into those details. Um, <laughs> typically, you start with collecting a word list, um, recording all of those, and then um, analyzing the sounds and the patterns of sounds in that language. So the patterns of sounds in the language is called the phonology. So which sounds change in what phonetic environments? Right? And then that's how you would ideally represent the language um, using symbols and letters um, but like I've said before sometimes the community already has a strong idea of how they want to represent their language and so sometimes you just have to go with that even if linguistically it doesn't really make sense <laughs> because if they don't like it they're not going to use it and if they're not going to use it then why are you doing what you're doing so yeah it's usually I would say communities probably already have a good idea of like what scripts they want to use if they're going to use Roman script or Burmese script. so then they just have to decide what symbols to use for what sounds so sometimes it's easy like your K sounds or B sounds or T sounds usually pretty straightforward but then languages that have different tones or different what we call phonation which is pretty common um, in Tibeto-Burman languages um, like creaky voice mm -hmm. or breathy voice or things that are happening in the throat, right? With your glottis, mm -hmm. with your vocal cords. Um, but especially if you're using Roman scripts, there's not really an easy way to represent those. There's not a straightforward or generally accepted way to represent those sounds. So you have to work through that. Mm -hmm. And then once they have that kind of settled, then they have to decide um, on spelling conventions. They have to decide on where... Um, word breaks will be on um, punctuation um things like that so once they have that or sort of a working orthography it doesn't have to be perfect they might change it later um usually they will you because usually you need to sort of test it so you test it by trying to write down your language so maybe you try to write down a story so in the process of writing down that story you kind of figure out oh well this doesn't really work and if you write it like this then it's going to be confusing with this who might read it like we may not be able to quite see where the syllable breaks are, syllable breaks are, things like that. So then it's kind of in this continual process of revision, right? So then from there, yeah, they keep keep writing. They keep writing, and that's how they learn to write their own language. At least in my experience, that's the best way to learn 
to read and write your own language um, if you're like at that stage, right? Just to try it out, try to read, try to write. And in that process, like I said, you'll sort of refine it as you go along. And from there, you just keep, keep re- creating, keep teaching other people. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it makes absolute sense. But um, so I'm just wondering, how much input do they have? Like, if, if you know, you call a linguist and you say, okay, I need a writing system for this language. Here's the sound system. Here are the phonotactics, blah, 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 blah. Make it happen. A linguist can do that. But like you say, if you give something to a community and they don't want to use it for whatever reason, and they may have, you know, historical or political or just personal preference, then then it's wasted effort. So how does the interaction go? Like, do you just recommend an idea and then you run it past them? Or do you come up with a full project and give them the full project as it is and listen to their feedback? Or how, how does that interaction work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a back and forth. And ultimately, if you're an outsider, you can't make any decisions. You can just give your recommendations um, yeah, we can kind of see how these kinds of things have gone awry in the Americas and Australia. There's actually a bit of resentment on the part of indigenous or Aboriginal peoples um, towards these outside linguists. Um, yeah, sometimes even like these universities will like own or have the copyright of their language, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it's their language, so it's really important to be really sensitive. To that um and yeah i think um a lot of it just being aware being sensitive recognizing the fact that this isn't your language it's your community you probably will never even be using this orthography so mm. it's just not your choice does that make sense yeah no i absolutely absolutely understand that um but and the other one is do you get any pushback against the very concept of a writing system. Uh, I know that there are some communities um, where literacy itself um, is viewed negatively. For example, the Yazidi community uh, from the Middle East have traditionally viewed literacy as something that, that should be the domain of, um, of the clergy and not something that other people should engage with. Have you ever received pushback against these efforts? Not quite to that extreme. I mean, sometimes people don't think that their language can be used in certain ways. Um, I think, oh, only Burmese can be used for poetry. My my language isn't sufficient. So get things like that. I don't think I've ever had any pushback against um, literacy. But again, I wouldn't be working with them if they didn't want it because I can't just force them to yeah. write down their language, right? Yeah. But these, so these communities, by and large, they are already literate in Burmese, correct? Mm, not always. And it kind of depends on what you mean by literate. Like a lot of people can read and write, or at least read Burmese, but they don't necessarily understand what it says. Does that make sense? Because that's how they're taught in school. They're just kind of memorized. Okay, this says debt. I don't know what debt means, but it says debt. So I can read it and can tell you what it's written, but I don't know what it means. Yeah, I I got you. But but at least, so the communities understand what what writing is, and therefore they understand the value of 
of writing as a as a tool that you can use for communication. Like they see how useful and important this is. Is what I'm getting at. Mm. I mean, I've never really asked specifically. I think, but I think that is something that we sort of have to explain or sort of work with them. Um. So sometimes I think people want their language to be written because it's sort of a status thing. Um, sometimes people who want their language to be written um, want it to be written because they want, for example, to have the Bible in their language. Because they see mm-hmm. these other groups with the Bible in their language. So they think, well, we need it too. Uh, um, okay. So many yeah. different motivations. I think so. And, you know, I think a lot of these communities are very much oral societies, right? They don't necessarily Mm. use the written word that much. So part of what we do is explain, well, you know, if you have a foundation in your first language, like you can learn additional language languages better, right? So it's difficult to both learn a new language while also learning sort of the concept of um, the written word. Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And so I'm wondering, because very early on you mentioned uh, the Lisu as a group. And for, for those who are unaware, uh, much, uh, many of the communities on the outskirts or many of the communities in border regions were Christianized by missionaries uh, quite some time ago. And those missionaries often played an important role in as you say, translating the Bible into different languages and also in the development of, of scripts. And, and I believe Lisu is one of the examples of this, where someone created a new writing system based on the Latin alphabet, but uh, from memory they, they operate by uh, rotating the shapes of the mm-hmm. letters of the Latin alphabet to indicate uh, combinations of sounds. Have you ever worked on creating something completely novel like that, or do you stick to tried and tested, you know, uh, schema that, that have already been utilized elsewhere? No, I haven't. And usually I don't come in until they already have an idea. Sometimes they already okay. have a working orthography. So um, no, I have not done that. <laughs> I would guess that most groups would not really want to do that, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, especially in the computer age, it's it's more and more important yeah. to use things that have already got computer compatibility, um, even if that means making compromises on on uh, sounds and efficiency. Um, so the the last thing that I want to move on to is probably the most important thing that I should have started with is the, the actual uh, education programs that you guys run. So you're talking about uh, after school programs uh, and literacy programs. So clearly, a lot of these children, they're going to schools, uh, they're going to government schools, they're being educated in in Burmese, and so you're providing ancillary education where they can uh, practice their own language. Are you also delivering uh, local culture-specific subjects in these schools, or is it just language-focused? Well, we don't run any schools ourselves. They're usually run mm-hmm. by the local community. Okay. Um, so they just do whatever they want, whatever, however they want to decide to set up their schools or their classes. Um, mm-hmm. local culture. Yeah. I mean, some groups, 
you know, they have these fully formed educational systems. So if you can look at, you can look at their curriculum and their curriculum goals and objectives. And yeah, it's pretty explicitly stated, like we want to um, teach and preserve our heritage, our culture, our language. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so you guys are just coming in to design this this general curriculum and and deliver to them the materials and the structure and a sort of pathway forward, and then they can take it from there and decide how they want to utilize that. Is that correct? Yeah, I really looked them for every group. Um, yeah, like I said, some have really fully functioning education systems. Some have a few schools. Some um, have extracurricular classes. Some haven't really started anything, but they know they want to start something. So sometimes mm-hmm. if they haven't really started anything, we kind of have to help them like think through this. Okay, like what do you, how are you going to do this logistically, practically? Who are your teachers going to be? Are they going to be paid? Are they going to volunteer? Do you need like a physical building? So it's really yeah. quite a wide range. Mm. Okay. So you, you would basically just have to come in um, like double rasa and say, all right, what is your situation? What are your needs? Boil it down for me. And then you would go back and try to develop a solution or as many solutions as you can to fit the needs of that particular community. Is that sort of? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say so. Wow. And so I'm wondering, have you seen the results of the work that you do? Like, if you're not the one running the schools, it can be very difficult to know what long-term impact there has been or hasn't been of these. If you just deliver the curriculum and you deliver options to people, and then you go on to another community and, and try to solve their problems, do you get the opportunity to go back and see how these programs have developed over time? Um, yeah, sometimes. You know, both of my colleagues have done research sort of in, in that vein. Um, so they've, yeah, been able to kind of formally assess that to some extent. Um, but especially with language, I mean, we don't necessarily see the results for, you know, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. So you kind of have to be patient. So the, the question then is, uh, you know, you, you work for these communities, you try to help them to preserve their languages. Realistically, how, how bad is the situation in Myanmar for minority languages? Do you think that there are going to be languages that are going to be lost and there's not much that we can do about that? Or do you think it is possible for us to act now and preserve all of the minority languages? Yeah, it's interesting. This sort of push for assimilation has, in some cases, kind of had the opposite effect. It's kind Mm. of bolstered this sort of pride in one's own identity and language. Um, So it's kind of encouraged more language preservation in a lot of ways in some communities. Um, But also the fact that there's um, such little infrastructure it's just kind of physically difficult to get from one place to another sometimes so some of these smaller languages that would probably be endangered if Myanmar had sort of developed like other maybe even Thailand um because it'd be so much more language contact so they would probably be more endangered if um that were the case the lack of infrastructure has kind of in some ways helped preserve languages I think um so yeah, it's in terms of language endangerment, it's not as bad as other places, but it's very easy for it to 
um, sort of go the other way, especially when you have this, like I was talking about, standard language ideology and push for not just assimilation, but just more dominant languages, right? Both mm. Burmese, English, other languages. And, and I would imagine that, I mean, you talk about the lack of development. Um, we do see in major city centers, we do see migration to urban centers, people looking for education opportunities and people looking for employment opportunities. Uh, so I would imagine that while on the one hand, the lack of development in rural areas means that um, this sort of, I'm not trying to be particularly heavy handed with my terminology, but predatory language contact um, is, is less prevalent. I would imagine that at the same time, uh, the new generations, they are being sent to urban centers to find opportunities and to find work where possible. And that could potentially lead to um, their their own loss of uh, connection to their language and, and use of their language. And if they settle in an urban center and things like that. Have you, have you seen these communities um, talking about, you know, effectively losing their youth to urban centers for, for economic reasons? Yes and no. I mean, I think okay. another sort of part of this is the fact that people moved to urban centers because they were fleeing violence. So okay. they also are, what's the word? And sometimes afraid to use their language because yes. using their language is kind of a shibboleth of death, right? Um, yes. So I think it's multi faceted. I don't know if people are um, talking about that or not. Um, you know, there's still quite a few, like, I'm not sure how to say, enclaves, and there's different dorms where people will go. Um, like, if you're a Shen, you, you know a Shen person in Yangon, they might have, like, a Shen dorm, so you live in the Shen dorm, so that kind of helps mm. preserve the language, I think. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's just because I, in other countries, you know, I've seen these sorts of uh, situations. Uh, New mm -hmm. Caledonia comes to mind where you go to the urban centers and, and uh, very few people speak their heritage language in the urban centers because all of the mm -hmm. ethnic groups are mixed together so closely that uh, French becomes the only language that you would mm -hmm. have reason to use. And once you leave the mm -hmm. urban centers, each tribe continues to communicate in their heritage language because, again, lack of development and therefore lack of language contact. So. Um, they're able to preserve their heritage in that way. But it's, mm -hmm. again, it's interesting to hear. Uh, mm. Yes? You can go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's interesting to hear your insights because, of course, every country is unique. And mm -hmm. even within a country like Myanmar, each region is unique. So uh, it's it's uh, good to hear that um, it's not happening the same way that people are managing to preserve their heritage languages even after they migrate to a place where they have now become a linguistic minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, well, I think part of it is because I don't know all that much about urbanization. Um, but there is a man, a researcher at La Trobe University. His name's Dr. Gerald Roche. And he had like just posted something about urbanization and language loss on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. So he essentially says um, that we need to be like move up beyond the approach of just simple um, urbanization 
and focus more on urbanization as a process and an emphasis on political ecology rather than simply ecology. That's the quote. Mm. Does that make sense? I mean, urbanization is also not my specialty, so <laughs> I think I grasp the loose concept, but not if you ask me to explain it. I don't think I'd be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he's just saying, like, there's sort of this focus on the city as a static place, right? And it's and not... Yeah, that it kind of is, creates its own sort of language ecology that endangers some and supports others, is what he says. Anyway, it's not my area's specialty either, but I, he um, always has lots of good insights. Mm. So for anyone that wants to read more about Gerald Roche and his work. Absolutely. I mean, it's always, it's always good to bring in these sort of outside um, specialties and and outside references because it, it allows people to go off in those mm. so many directions of, of research. Um, but uh, but anyway, I, I just want to say this this has been absolutely delightful and edifying for me. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion, even if it did sort of wander into um, strange and unexpected places from time to time. Uh, so I just want to ask you before we uh, wrap up here, is there any overarching thought or maybe even food for thought that you want to leave the audience hmm. with? I mean, I wish we would just talk about language more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish that we would study linguistics in school. I wish it was a compulsory subject um, and not just, you know, what people usually think of linguistics as grammar and phonetics, but also the social aspect, the form and function of language and the politics and power of language. Because um, most people don't really even have a framework to approach it and they just have no idea what to think or what they should be asking, right? So really, if you just start talking about language. Once again, thank you to everybody who's joining us, and I'd like to extend a special thanks to my guest, Katie Craig, for taking us on a thoroughly invigorating journey through the many and varied language communities and cultures of Myanmar, and for shining a light on some very serious issues surrounding language, identity, and politics. I hope you enjoyed this episode, I hope you learned something new, and I hope that you join us next time. As a small, mostly volunteer team, the production time for a single episode of Insight Myanmar podcast can sometimes be as long as four months from start to finish. More recently, we've tried to increase the speed of this process for special episodes, but the fastest we've been able to manage has been around three weeks. During this current crisis, however, where even a single day can be so urgent, we simply don't have the luxury of waiting so long. We've worked around the clock to shorten this time frame, and some episodes have managed a turnaround of just 36 hours. Similarly, while our previous goal was to produce a podcast once every 10 days, we are now trying to put out episodes as soon as they finish, knowing how valuable it is to get these ideas out there at this critical time. However, we cannot accomplish this increase without your support. If you have found value in today's episode and think that others may also benefit from this type of content at this time, please consider making a donation so that we can continue our mission.